It's go time. The Canadian Football League 2023 season is in the books, but there's lots to talk about as we come toward playoffs and player rewards. Hi, everybody. Don Charbon along with Heath Graham and Pat Mooney. We welcome you back to our show and let's talk about player awards. We've got some MLP nominations from each division that have been announced and any surprises? I don't think there's any real surprises. I think one of the toughest categories this year was the rookie of the year, most outstanding rookie, because there didn't seem to be anybody that really had a, a huge breakout season. You look at Somebody like Dalton Schoen last year who led the league in receiving was a runaway winner of Rookie of the Year. There's worthy candidates on every team, but nobody that really jumped off the page. Very true. Let's just read them off. We'll start with uh, Coach of the Year and we'll work our way up the list to MOP. So Coach of the Year, we have Ryan Dinwiddie leads the Argonauts to 16-2 and record and Mike O'Shea, perennial strong team in Winnipeg, 14-4. and Thoughts on who may come away with that? If I'm voting in that one, I, I would be voting for um, Ryan Dinwiddie. I think Toronto has really come a long way. Last year, they got very strong in the end, of course, won the Grey Cup. But this year, they were dominant throughout the whole year. So for me, that's who I would be voting for is Dinwiddie. I, I would give the nod to Dinwiddie as well. Not to take away from Mike O'Shea and what he's done over the last four seasons with the Bombers. He's been very successful. But what stands out to me is the fact that the Argos clinched first overall in the East after their 12th game this season, and they didn't let off. Even though they managed some players and, and Chad Kelly had to watch from the sidelines a little bit as Cameron Dukes took some snaps, they maintained their consistency and pushed on to that 16-2 and record. So that is, that's a real big reason for me of why I give Dinwiddie the nod. Dinwiddie, I w- would agree as well. Uh, I think he's going to win the award. It's pretty tough for a, a coach that's had a consistently good team to get the award. It's typically the guy that's brought his team up from somewhere that is usually acknowledged. So I, I am agreeing with you guys. I think Ryan Dinwiddie of the Argonauts. Now let's go to Outstanding Rookie, something that you alluded to earlier, Heath. We've got Quantez Stiggers from the Toronto Argonauts and Kai Gray, well, both defensive backs, Edmonton Elks. Thoughts on that? Watching Argo games this year, Quantez Stiggers really stood out. He was a player that I, I heard his name a lot making big plays. Kai Gray had an outstanding season as well, but I'm going to give the nod again to the Argonauts. It's, you might see a bit of a theme here. There's a lot of Bombers and a lot of Argonauts nominees for valid reasons. And, and I think uh, I think Stiggers had the, the more outstanding season as far as these two rookies. I concur, Heath. I thought Stigger's name was often out there in the course of a game. And, and well, Gray had an outstanding season. He just didn't stand out as much in the course of the play of the game for me as Stiggers did. So I would I would agree. I'd be voting for Stiggers as well. The harder thing for Kai Gray is typically if you're on a team that's not making the playoffs, you don't get talked about as much as the guy that's on a team that's going to the playoffs. And so you get that extra little push from the press. Quantez Stigger had a, a fantastic season. I believe he will also be Outstanding Rookie of the Year. Let's move up to special teams. And this one's interesting because we do have a contrast. We've got 
a kick returner in Javon Leak with the Toronto Argonauts and a kicker with Sean White of the BC Lions. And Sean White was just unstoppable in terms of his accuracy this year. This is a tough one. Again, it's, it's very contrasting nominees. Sean White was over 94% on his field goal attempts this year, which is an astounding number for a kicker. On the flip side, you've got Javon Leak, who had four kick return touchdowns, which is only one off the CFL record, and was was electric in a lot of those games, and really keeping with the tradition of strong kick returners in, in Toronto from Pinball Clemens through Rocket Ishmael, Chad Owens, and now now Javon Leak. I'm going to give the nod. If I had a vote, I would more likely vote for Sean White, given the, the consistency in the numbers he put up. My prediction is that Javon Leak will win this one. Javon Leak is the returner. And of course, his name gets called and we get to watch the play where you have a kicker like Sean White, who's just consistent. The three misses he had were over 50 yards. And I mean, that's an outstanding percentage considering that, you know, 50 yards is a 50-50 at best for most kickers. And he had an outstanding season. I would want to go with White as well. Leak is a dynamic player. Leak's name is out there more. And I think you're right, Heath. He could get the nod. But if I were voting, I'd be voting for White as well. Sean White also, I I would be voting for him if I had a vote. Who I think is going to win is Javon Leak because he did have four returns for scores. He did do a lot of things for the Argonauts that kept them in games, that got them going in games. He was a spark plug. Sean White was just sheer consistency and had a couple of game-winning field goals in the run. But you're right. I think Javon Leak probably wins. Now, let's move up to outstanding offensive linemen. This one could be debated. We've got uh, Dejon Allen of the Toronto Argonauts and Jamarcus Hardrick of the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. Okay, I, I like Jamarcus Hardrick in this one. Uh, keeping with the tradition of Blue Bombers winning outstanding offensive linemen. It's been Stanley Bryant's award for the last 30 or so years, roughly. Um, a little bit of a different look this year on the other side of that offensive line with Jamarcus Hardrick. He's been another standout on that line for a number of years. And I think it's this year he gets the recognition. And not to take anything away from Dijon Allen, that Argonauts offensive line is right there with Winnipeg and is probably the, the two best in the league. I just, I don't want to see a, an Argonauts sweep and I'm kind of leaning that way in my, my other votes. So I'm going to go with, with, uh, with Yoshi in this one. This is a case of an old Wiley veteran in uh, Jamarcus Hardrick, who's played offensive line. We know his name as an offensive lineman, where Dijon Allen has just in his third year right now, last year had an outstanding year, uh, East Division All-Star. This year, once again, there's no doubt he'll be an East Division All-Star. So I think you've got the longtime outstanding offensive lineman against the up-and-coming offensive lineman here. I think voters will be more familiar with Hardrick for the same reason. Uh, he's He's been outstanding and he's had that long time. And for me, I'd be voting for Hardrick as well. Hardrick will definitely get a lot of consideration again because of what Brady Oliveira did this year. Dejon Allen gets a lot of consideration because Chad Kelly stayed on his feet all year. I think the Argonauts gave up 19 sacks all season. This one is going to be a coin flip. And I would probably lean towards Hardrick, but where the vote goes, your guess is as good as mine. 
Outstanding Canadian. Marc-Antoine Ducroix of the Alouettes defensive back versus Brady Oliveira, Winnipeg Blue Bombers running back. In this case, I think you have to go with Oliveira. Uh, he's had an outstanding season as Canadian. Well, let's not take anything away from Marc-Antoine Decroix. He's an outstanding defensive player. And as a DB, he's had an outstanding year. He just doesn't stand in comparison to the year that we've seen come from Brady Oliveira. He's been an outstanding running back and real key for the Blue Bombers offense. I, I would agree with you on this one. And there is a wealth of Canadian talent in the CFL right now. And you look at the guys who were nominated Marc-Antoine Decroix definitely stood out in Montreal. In the West, arguments could be made for Matthew Betts, Brady Oliveira. Nick Dembski was a front runner earlier on in the season. He kind of tailed off a little bit towards the end of the season. There, there's a, a plethora of great candidates, but you have to look at the numbers that Oliveira put up this year. Over 2,000 yards of offense, over 1,500 yards rushing, and really came into his own as one of the premier running backs in the league. I think this one would be a near runaway for Oliveira. Dequat could have been outstanding defensive. He happens to be outstanding Canadian. It's really tough because he's meeting a juggernaut in Oliveira, and I don't know that he can overcome that. It's unfortunate because Dequat needs that kind of accolade because he played a season that well deserved it. Outstanding defensive player. We've got linebacker Adarius Pickett of the Toronto Argonauts and defensive lineman Matthew Betts of the BC Lions. Thoughts there? I I think Matthew Betts gets the nod on this one. Uh, 18 sacks, a new record for a Canadian defensive lineman. Adarius Pickett, you can't take anything away from him either. If you look statistically at what each of them did, it is really, really close race. The new record for Matthew Betts, I think, is what's going to be the difference maker and he'll win this one. I don't disagree. Uh, Adarius Pickett's an outstanding linebacker. 105 tackles is outstanding. The sixth most in franchise history, which is a milestone given the Argonauts have been in this league for so long. But at the same point, I think Matthew Betts being able to come in as a Canadian and dominate the way he did this year on the defensive line and getting 18 sacks. For me, Matthew Betts is going to be the one that should run away with this. Darius Pickett throughout the year tended to grade out as the top defensive player in the league. But how do you ignore Matthew Betts's 18 sacks? That's something that gets him the, the nod as most outstanding defensive player. We now land on what everybody's going to be talking about. Most outstanding player. We have quarterback Chad Kelly of the Toronto Argonauts. Running back Brady Oliveira of the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. Two outstanding offensive players. Um, Having Chad Kelly come into the league has certainly enlivened the offensive output of the Toronto Organauts. So, I mean, for me, I turn on games so that I can watch Chad Kelly. I find him to be an outstanding player, exciting player, and he, he always seems to be able to make the plays when it matters. Oliveira, on the other hand, has stepped right in behind that offensive line of Winnipeg, and he's continued to have a great year. Uh, 2,000 yards from scrimmage, as you mentioned, Heath, is is great. It's a career high for him. In this case, though, I think if I'm taking a look at the player who a team couldn't do without, I'd say Chad Kelly could take the, the nomination for this one. And this is where that debate 
gets interesting because you look at most outstanding versus most valuable. If the the trophy, the award was named most valuable player, and you're looking at value to their team, it's Chad Kelly running away. He he led that team to that 16 and two record. But if if you want to consider outstanding as far as the wow factor of what they did this season, if I had a vote, it would be Brady Oliveira. And a couple of things to throw out there. Zach Kolaris, the two-time reigning MOP, didn't get the nod from his own team this year. He got beat out by Oliveira. And if you look at the sheer numbers, Zach Kolaris had 10 more touchdown passes than Chad Kelly. Three more interceptions, but 10 more touchdowns. Kelly's only fourth in the league in passing yards behind Vernon Adams, Zach Kolaris, and Jake Mayer. Yes, he had a phenomenal season. He really came into his own and has taken the leadership role of the Toronto Argonauts. But Brady Oliveira, again, over 1,500 yards rushing, 2,000 yards from scrimmage, and really had the ability to take over games late when the Bombers needed to maintain a lead. He carried them through that. So if I'm if I'm voting outstanding, I'm voting Brady Oliveira. If I had to pick my guess as to who's going to win the award, oftentimes quarterbacks seem to get a little bit of an edge. So I believe that Chad Kelly, maybe a little bit undeservedly, will be named the MOP. The hardest thing to assess is what a player did for his team and what did the team do for that player. When you've got the two sort of mixed together, Chad Kelly had an outstanding receiving core. So many times during this season, you could see Chad Kelly all of a sudden look and say, okay, Devaris Daniels, catch one. I need a touchdown now. And he would do it for him. Where Brady Oliveira had that offensive line that just opened the seas for him and he could walk through. Very, very difficult. I'm kind of thinking if it's the wow factor, it's Chad Kelly. If it's they lean towards who's more valuable to their team. It might be Oliveira. The the big thing about these awards is no matter who wins them, they're all deserving players. And, and that's outstanding when you see the caliber of players across all of these categories. It makes for some tough decisions for those who do have votes. And, and if you ask all of these Blue Bombers and all of these Argonauts that are up for these awards, they would trade that individual award for the Grey Cup, hands down. Let's get into coaching. We've already talked about MOP coaches. Bob Dice is coming back as the head coach of the Ottawa Red Blacks for 2024. Good, bad, had to be. What do you think? I think continuity is a good thing for the Red Blacks. Um, you know, they, they, they've consistently underperformed in the last few years. We seem to think they're going to do better than they do. But at the same point, I think having consistency can allow them to take that next step and determine whether or not is it the coaching that's going to be able to do improve because they're only given the players they had at the start of the year. And I thought Bob Dice did a good job with the the players that Ottawa has in building the team. And I think they're now primed to take that next step that we've been waiting for so long for them to do with Bob Dice as the head coach. I like keeping Bob Dice and giving him one more opportunity. The Red Blacks have gone through a lot of change over the last few seasons. They've had a new a new head coach, a new general manager, they invested a lot of money in a starting quarterback who's played a handful of games over the last couple of seasons. They've had to fight through that adversity. I agree with you, Pat, that consistency is important. 
Bob Dice has been on this team. He didn't just come in fresh as the head coach. He's been in other roles on the team over the last several years as well. Players know him. The organization is comfortable with him. And I 100% support giving him another season or two at the helm to see what he can do. Now the Rough Riders are looking for a head coach and two of the big names that sort of came out as being interested, at least stating categorically they were, one being Kelly Jeffrey, who of course is with the team and it would be a step up. The other is Henry Burris, who's not with the team right now. Of course, the former quarterback of the Rough Riders, Stan Peters. What do you think of his nod in terms of, hey, I'm interested? Well, I think it's one thing to be interested in coaching, but I'm not sure, given Henry Burris's coaching career thus far, that he's in a position to say, I am fully ready to be a head coach. I think he's got a lot of potential. I'd love to see him as an offensive coordinator in this league. And if he were to land in Saskatchewan as offensive coordinator, I think that would be amazing for whoever the head coach is. I just don't see Henry Burris as being head coach caliber at this point in his career. He's very well spoken. I think he'd do very well with the media, but I'm not sure that he's the person to lead this team to sustained success. He's been around football for a long time and he's he's been in coaching roles. You're right, he doesn't have that experience necessarily that makes him jump out as a leading candidate. But the CFL has done a great job over the last few years of giving new coaches opportunity. And this would be another one, uh, a familiar name, somebody that's well-respected in the league getting that chance. For years, people complained about the CFL just recycling the same coaches over and over and over. Right now, we're in a situation where, if you count the recently um, not renewed Craig Dickinson, we had six CFL coaches that were in their first head coaching position. Bob Dice had a short interim opportunity before, but this is his first chance really anointed as a head coach. So we're not in that that stagnation of repetitive recycling of coaches. There's a lot of names being tossed around right now for that Saskatchewan job. They may be interviewing eight candidates and shortlisting down to two or three. It's going to be a really thoughtful decision. And there's a lot of talent and a lot of great football minds that will have to be in consideration for this job. Henry Burris interests me only because when he left the Rough Riders, he didn't leave on the best of terms. Now, in his situation, I understood why he left, because he was not going to be the starting quarterback of this football club at the time. They had anointed somebody else, and he wanted to go start somewhere. That kind of soured a lot of people without that knowledge. They were soured on him. And so wanting to come back here, I understand his desire we don't know what type of head coach he would make because we just haven't seen it anywhere. This would be a bit of a flyer if you're the Rough Riders, but having said that, why not? Uh, you did one with Craig Dickinson. It didn't work out. Maybe it could with Burris. Some of the uh, chatter coming out of the end of the season was who had the easier schedule in terms of how this schedule is constructed when it comes to final standings. Specifically, the, the argument is the Winnipeg Blue Bombers versus the Toronto Argonauts. The Argonauts finished 16-2, and, and the 
Blue Bombers finished 14 and four. And there was a sort of this ongoing push that the East is allegedly weaker than the West. Well, the Argos swept the East 10 games to none. They took out every opponent they had. In that grouping, Montreal was an 11 and seven team. Hamilton was seven and 11 and Ottawa was four and 14. Winnipeg was 14 and four, as we, as I mentioned, against the West, they were 10 and two. They swept Edmonton and Calgary and took two of three from Saskatchewan. Edmonton had a four and 14 record, Calgary six and 12 and Saskatchewan six and 12. Just to put a little bit of a rider on this, not one East team had a losing record against the West. Toronto was six and two, Hamilton five and three, Montreal four and four, Ottawa four and four. West teams against the East, Winnipeg was four and two, BC four and two, and the rest had losing records. Calgary, Saskatchewan two and five, Edmonton one and five. I don't understand the argument here that Winnipeg had the tougher schedule. It's fairly balanced if you look at the records of all these teams. The The one argument I guess I would make would be Toronto had an easier route with Ottawa, but all Ottawa did was beat Winnipeg. So, you know, you have to take each of those with a grain of salt. And you could say that Winnipeg maybe had an easier time having Edmonton as their opponent with given Edmonton's record. Apples to apples, I think it was it was pretty close. And you look at the Montreal Alouettes with that 11-7 and seven record, all of their losses came against the teams that finished ahead of them in the standings. All, all seven of their losses were against Toronto, Winnipeg, and BC. So you can't really say that they were necessarily a pushover. They just couldn't quite get over the, the hump of those, those top teams. It's not like a, a, the NFL that's got 32 teams and you're playing against divisions with some really weak or within your own division, some really weak opponents, this realistically balances out fairly close. It does. It's been a long time since we've seen the East do much better than the West. Um, you know, with a, without a losing record, I can't tell you when the last time that happened. 2015. Was it 2015? So, you know, you, you can argue that the East has been weaker traditionally over time and maybe they have an easier record because of that. But at the same point, the East seemed to dominate the West this year. So, I, I think both teams have played very well. I don't know if it's worth even arguing about who had the easier road here because at this point, it's which team's going to be able to sustain success into the playoffs and at the Great Cup if they can make it there. And if you want to argue that the, that the Bombers had the easier schedule, or sorry, if, if you want to argue that Winnipeg had the tougher schedule, look at two, who two of those losses were against. They were two teams in the East that you would argue that Toronto had no problem getting past. Ottawa and Hamilton both had very solid wins against the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. And conversely, one of Toronto's two losses was against a, a lowly Calgary Stampeders team that Winnipeg didn't really seem to have too much trouble with. To be fair to Toronto, though, Chad Kelly was injured in the first quarter of that football game, and that's the only time they lost with him being a starter. This is part of that overall thought that the league needs to get back to a balanced schedule that everybody plays everybody twice and then you make up the final two games in your own division to get to 18 and the CFL went away from that for two reasons one because they wanted to get more local rivalries going again get the east playing the east the west playing the west and the second thing was it's travel it's plain and simple travel 
In the Montreal Hamilton game on the weekend, we saw Cole Speaker do it again with a catch, kick, recovery on a second and long, and the Alouettes got a first down as a result of it. Of course, everybody got up in arms again saying, how can this be allowed? Let's remember, this is the Canadian Football League, not the NFL, USFL, or XFL. Second thing is, the team to whom he did it, the Hamilton Tiger Cats, were asked afterwards how they felt about it. Head coach and their starting quarterback both said, it's part of the league, it's part of the rules, we knew about it, we can be better. There was no thought about ridding that rule. There has been a lot of people say that this is a rule that needs to be addressed in the offseason, and I disagree with that wholeheartedly. I love the fact that this is in the league. Defenses need to be ready and prepared to play against that type of option. So if you're going to drop back 15 or 20 yards, you're allowing that to happen. If defenses kick on to that, hey, we've got to step up and meet people at the line, it also opens things up offensively for those big strike plays. And to me, that's what we want to see in this league is the opportunity to have those second and 15, second and 20 plays converted. Ideally, you don't want to see the short play, but it's there. It's in the rule book. So defend against it. Put a plan in place. There's nothing to change, in my opinion. I keep the rule. I was with you there, Pat. I was going to say the exact same thing. If you don't like it, defend it. It's it's there. It keeps defenses honest, is what it does. You look at these two successful onside punts that the Alouettes have made this season. Where was the defense? They were backed way, way, way off the line of scrimmage, allowed these guys to essentially walk up to the line, kick the ball forward three feet, and fall on it. It was very poorly covered defensively. I, I've seen a lot of prominent voices in media saying that this makes a mockery of the game and it's an embarrassment, and I disagree 100%. If I was to look at this rule, the only thing that I would tweak is I don't necessarily like the fact that it's a forward pass still behind the line of scrimmage and a kick. I would like to see it be more of a lateral play, just given. If you look at some of the the routes, if we want to go back to rugby, there's no forward pass in rugby. It's all laterals and kicking. So that would be the only thing I would consider changing. I I love the play calling. Very smart and heads up play by the Alouettes. Bo Levi Mitchell in his press conference when he was asked about this, and he was standing on the sideline when this happened. And he sort of smacked his helmet and said, oh, why weren't we ready for this? His thinking is, it's going to make defenses play press coverage. And if you don't know what press coverage me- means, essentially your corners, or your halfbacks are coming closer to the line of scrimmage because they want to be on top of the receiver as they come off the line of scrimmage when the ball is snapped. Well, that, as you guys have alluded, that will provide depth. In other words, you can throw over that defense if they're up against the line of scrimmage. You can beat them man on man or if they dropped his own, there's going to be wider gaps to find. And Bo thought the rule would help that. And I'd have to agree with him. If you eliminate it, you've got a lot of problems with what else are you doing by eliminating this rule? Therein lies the rub. It's one thing to say you, uh, you can't do this on this certain circumstance, but there are many other circumstances that are impacted 
by a change like this. So you have to be very careful. The lateral idea, I kind of like because it does then take a little bit more time. You have to move to the line of scrimmage. The defense can twig a little quicker and say, oh, oh this is what they may be doing. Uh, there was a an expletive or a X tweet that said it cheapened what Chad Kelly did in the Grey Cup last year when he went around end and ran down the field. No, it didn't. What Chad Kelly did against the Blue Bombers in that fourth quarter was fantastic. It has nothing to do with this. This is all about an Alouettes team that have discussed this rule, figured out that they can be used. There's only twice this year that it's worked. So let's just get off of it. I mean, we have, what, 5,000 plays in a season and we're wired about two of them? Give me a break. Let's be realistic here. We love the Canadian game. We love its identity. We love its idiosyncrasies. You keep them in place and keep defenses honest. And realistically, if you look at the play from this past week, it was a second and 20, I believe, roughly, when this second and 20, it gained them half of a yard and they did not make the next first down. They, they eliminated a yard of field, got a new set of downs, didn't move the ball to first down territory, ended up punting anyway. So it's not a, a game breaker. It's a, an opportunity to extend a drive. I think it's a brilliant coaching move. And most teams usually have somebody spying the running back as they come out of the backfield. This isn't rocket science. You know that this is a, a possibility. Get up there and deal with it. I, I just, to me, I hate it when creative creativity is stifled because people are afraid of it. It also allows a receiver to make that judgment call too, right? We, we pass you the ball. If they're closing on you, then you're going to try to run. If, if they're not closing on you... You make the call and kick it if you can. Twice this season. That's all. Twice. Second down. Three games in week 21 to wrap up the CFL schedule. We start in Calgary where the Winnipeg Blue Bombers and the Calgary Stampeders compete. Stampeders give a game of it till the third quarter. They seem to be in a football game, and then in the fourth quarter, the Winnipeg Blue Bombers score 17. Calgary scores none. The Bombers win going away 36-13. Drew Brown goes all the way at quarterback, relatively speaking, for the Winnipeg Blue Bombers and gets some valuable playing time. 12 points scored by the Winnipeg Blue Bombers with field goals in the first half. Calgary's first two scores were also field goals. It was kind of a boring game if you like touchdowns. Um, Again, Sergio Castillo had a fantastic night perfect on his kicks. What stood out to me most in this game was the maturity of Drew Brown. I wasn't sold on him as a backup quarterback last season from what we did see of him. This year, he has shown that he is going to get a look from some teams that are looking for a starting quarterback. 983 yards passing total this year with nine passing touchdowns and zero interceptions. That is going to turn some heads. It's actually a CFL record for most touchdown completions without an interception in a season. Drew Brown does look like he may be in the running for a starting job next year. It's the second time this season that Brown has started and beaten the Stampeders. Brown goes 13 to 17 for 278 yards. Those are always great numbers when you do that. Two touchdown passes. Johnny Augustine. 87 yards rushing, and of course, Brady Oliveira got a lot of playing time and picked up 36 yards and got over that magic 1,500. 
going into this one, he needed about 20 yards to break that that 1,500-yard mark. He got 36 on the ground, got himself there. Greg McRae mixed back into the offense for the Blue Bombers. It was an opportunity for them to, to rest some guys. We did see Rashid Bailey got a little dinged up late in this game. His status is still unknown for that West Final, as is Dalton Schoen's. The Calgary Stampeders, to me, that receiving core, one of the stories for them this year is dropped passes. Again, it seems like you look at the yardage that Jake Mayer has put up, and he's third in the league in, in passing yards. Could be so much more, but time and again, those Stampeders receivers seem to drop a ball, and not even a, a contested one. We've, we've seen lots of opportunities where they're wide open and they just overthink it and, and can't come up with the ball. It's going to be so important for the Stampeders to have Reggie Bagleton back in the lineup. He takes a lot of the defense towards him. That opens up other guys. If they can hang on to the ball, as you mentioned, Stampeders are dynamite, but when they're dropping it, they are not. Jake Mayer's number is six completions on 15 attempts for 110 yards and a touchdown. Tommy Stevens threw the ball a couple of times as well, two for four for nine yards. Not a huge night for those guys. Dakota Prukop actually got some passes in as well. He was four for eight for 28 yards. Move to Saturday, where the Hamilton Tiger Cats take on the Alouettes in Montreal. The two teams are going to be facing each other this weekend as well. A very entertaining football game. And the Alouettes come out on top 22-20, to a game that featured two kick return scores. Those were kind of the highlights to me in this one. I don't know if it was, I don't know if I found it as entertaining throughout the game as, as perhaps you did. I saw two kick return touchdowns and an onside punt work successfully. Other than that, it was two teams that didn't want to show too much to the other, knowing that they're going to play in a game that matters a heck of a lot more in one week's time. Tyreek McAllister with a missed field goal return, touchdown score, and then later in the game for the Alouettes, coming back the other way, James Letcher took a punt to the house. Exciting moments in a football game that you didn't know exactly how the teams would fair against each other because they do know that in seven days they were going to do it all over again. The Ticats did what they're going to be doing in the playoffs. Start with Bo Levi Mitchell and then come back with another quarterback. This day, it happened to be Taylor Powell. In the playoffs, it's most likely Matthew Schiltz. Yeah, I'm a bit surprised that Coach Steinauer has indicated that he's going with a two-quarterback system in the East final. If a quarterback starts really hot, though, how do you pull him? If Bo Levi Mitchell gets the start in this game, gets on fire, throws a couple of touchdown passes in the first quarter, are you sticking with that plan or do you give Mitchell a little bit more opportunity to continue the game? A final game, Toronto Argonauts at the Ottawa Red Blacks. It was Toronto going in wanting that 16th win on the season. Ottawa trying to defeat an Eastern opponent, something they hadn't done all year. Everything stayed the same, and the Argonauts win 27-22. Ryan Dinwiddie dodges three Gatorade showers. Okay, people, why do we do this? Especially on a freezing night. Are we trying to kill the man with pneumonia? It's a tradition that's been around for a long time. If I was coaching, I would do all my best to get out of the way as well. So uh, great job by Dinwiddie. Dustin Crum. Ran a little bit more in this game. He seems to be 
more successful when he gets those opportunities. Eight carries for 73 yards. 22 of 35, passing for 273 yards, two touchdowns, two interceptions. I like mixing in some runs with Dustin Crum. I know, Don, you're not a fan of your quarterback running necessarily, but when you can do it with that ability, and it seems to get him more engaged in the games. I'm not a fan of it because it just shortens careers. That's all there is to it. When you've got all this other weaponry around you to use, these people want the ball, let them have it. Cameron Dukes went all the way for the Argonauts, 22 of 34 for 317 yards and a couple of touchdowns, of course. Mason Pierce had an interception that went for a score early in the game, and that seemed to tip the balance in favor of Toronto, a balance that they never relented. Another interesting player to watch in this one, Carlton Agadosi, who was released by the Winnipeg Blue Bombers off their practice roster and picked up by the Argonauts, had a couple of catches and... Conversely, the Bombers have now picked up an Argonauts cast-off receiver. Markeith uh, Ambles. Markeith Ambles. So a little bit of gamesmanship there of, of maybe picking up a player that knows the playbook of the team that you quite possibly are going to be facing in a championship game. Technically, they got him off of Calgary because he was there last. Well, there's a potential they play Calgary in the playoffs too if Calgary can knock BC off. That's true. <laughs> they could be covering off all their bases. <laughs> of a very valuable addition for the Blue Bombers, perhaps. Third down. Two games in the Canadian Football League this weekend. It's playoff time. Semi-final Saturday in the Canadian Football League, and you think, Saturday? When was the last time they played on a Saturday in the playoffs? Well, semifinals and finals, not so much anyway, because up until 1972 in the West and 1973 in the East, there was a mix of either two-game total points, three-game best-ofs, that would vary between Saturday, Sunday, Wednesday... So there's your reason why, especially the semifinals and the finals were harder to pin in terms of when they last played on a Saturday. Grey Cups were always played on a Saturday until 1968. Then they experimented in 1969, moving it to a Sunday, or it may have been just circumstance. And then they went back to a Saturday in 1970, and it's been Sundays ever since from 71 on. I would like to see Grey Cups played on Saturday again. Let's get to the football games. First off, we have the Hamilton Tiger Cats taking on the Montreal Alouettes. The Alouettes are three and a half point favorites in this football game at home. Crowd should be big. Bo Levi Mitchell will get the start for Hamilton. Cody Fajardo gets the start for the Tiger Cats. What do you think are the keys to this game? Montreal's defense has been one of the best in the league this year. They're going to need that consistency to compete in this one. The Alouettes haven't blown a lot of teams away. Cody Fajardo has been solid at quarterback, but not lights out. It's that it's the Hamilton offense against the Montreal defense that's going to be really what decides this game. The two quarterback situation in Hamilton is is interesting to watch as well. As I mentioned earlier, how committed are you to the two quarterback system if one of them gets really hot? 
I like the Alouettes in this one at home. I, I think that crowd is going to go a long way to, to leading them in, in this one as well. A close game. I don't know if they necessarily cover the three and a half. It's, this might be one of those last minute field goal type situations or a, a really close one down to the wire. I think this will be interesting to watch the quarterback plays on both sides. Cody Fajardo just hasn't been able to win in the playoffs. I wonder if that may be something that reoccurs moving ahead. We know Bo Levi Mitchell has played very successfully, but as of late, his stats haven't necessarily risen up to where we we expect him to be. So to me, it comes down to the play of the quarterback. You're right, Montreal's defense is a huge key. If Montreal can find ways to score as they did throughout the season, non-offensive touchdowns, be that by the returner, who we know James Letcher Jr. has been amazing these last few weeks. Their defense has also turned in a number of touchdowns. In fact, I I believe they led the league with 12 non-offensive touchdowns this year. So if Montreal is able to do that and Cody Fajardo can manage the game without trying to do too much, I think they should cover the spread. Cody Fajardo has led the league in passing accuracy all year. If he can stay on his feet, the downside of the Alouettes this year is they've given up a lot of sack. That's going to be huge. Bo Levi Mitchell, this is his first real chance to work with Scott Milanovic as his offensive coordinator for a real important let's go for it game. He hasn't had that opportunity because of injury. He got injured early in the season. He came back. He got injured immediately again. So he, though he's been around and though he's been on the sideline, he's had very little opportunity to actually work with his OC And we know Milanovic is a quarterback whisperer. Whoever he has under his tutelage performs very, very well. The Tiger Cats, if they're going to win this football game, they've got to get out early. They can't wait for the offense to get going. This is going to be huge. This is why I think Matthew Schultz is being bantied about as a likely person that's going to see a lot of playing time because they're not going to wait on Mitchell to get hot. If they get to behind and they're trying to force that ball, outstanding Canadian nominee Marc-Antoine Decroix back there. We've seen him with some very timely interceptions, returning them for touchdowns. He can be a game breaker that really flips this game around. The other person, uh, you can look at Tyree Beverett. You can look at Darnell Sankey. Huge seasons for both of them. And granted, Sankey was only there for half of it, but he's made an impact upon this defense. Montreal at home, three and a half. I think it's a little bit low. I would have put them maybe at five and a half over the Tiger Cats. The Alouettes have won all three games against the Tiger Cats this year. Their history in the playoffs, if you're curious, Tiger Cats have won 17 of 27 games all time that these two teams have met. But in recent years, it's been the Alouettes defeating the Tiger Cats Inasmuch as Cody Fajardo has struggled in playoff games, this may be his chance to break out. I'm leaning towards the Alouettes at home. The late game on Saturday, the Calgary Stampeders go back to BC to play the Lions in Vancouver. They've opened up the upper bowl. We know there's going to be a big crowd there and they are loud and enthusiastic at BC Place. The Stampeders go in as six and a half point underdogs. Last year, Falaran Oromolade almost carried the Stampeders on his back, 
but he couldn't get it done. Bo Levi Mitchell comes off the bench in the last quarter and rallies the troops, but they fall short. It's a different Calgary team now with Jake Mayer at the helm. How do they fare? I, I think the PC Lions got a wake-up call recently with Calgary coming into BC place and beating them. This is going to be a, a different and more motivated BC Lions team in this final. I know it's a bit of a cop-out picking the, the home teams to win. They do get a huge home field advantage in the playoffs, and I, I believe that the Lions are going to be ready for this one. A 6-12 and 12 team limping their way into the playoffs on a, a, a three and six down the stretch to get into the playoffs doesn't give me a lot of confidence that they're going to be able to make a lot of noise. Yes, the Stampeders have been better in recent weeks. The Winnipeg Blue Bombers rested at least 10 of their starters last week and didn't have too much trouble dispatching the Stampeders. I'm taking the Lions. The Lions offensive performance has been outstanding, but there are games where Vernon Adams Jr., plays an interesting game where he's giving the ball away a lot on on defense. And to me, if they can't establish the run, and I look at Calgary as a better running team overall, even though the stats are fairly close on the year, I think Calgary has a better running game. If BC can't establish the run and it all falls to Vernon Adams having to sling the ball, you've got a picking game. He could be one where he's throwing three or four interceptions, which we've seen before. He does seem to pull those out in the end because he's got an outstanding receiving core, but I expect that Calgary and some of their players like Cameron Judge and, and the defense is going to step this one up. And to me, I think it's going to be closer than, than you know, earlier in the year I would have given this to BC hands down. Calgary has come on strong. I think Calgary will give them a good game and has the potential if they can make the turnovers at opportune times to get momentum and win this game. Now the Lions are coming in shorthanded. Sione Tahama has been suspended for a game for his altercation with Calgary Stampeders offensive lineman Dante Demery, who at one point was headbutted by Tahame. Another point was slugged in the jaw by Tahame. He got tossed. That usually brings with it supplementary discipline. This meant he's going to be kicked out for a football game. That impacts rotation on that defensive line. I'm a huge Vernon Adams Jr. fan, but he can be feast and famine even within a quarter. You just don't know what you're going to get with him. I don't know what it is about his psyche. Maybe he just is fragile with his confidence. And when something goes wrong, he sort of gets down on himself. But he just has to be the best Vernon Adams Jr. that he can be. He can't be the one that threw six picks in Toronto earlier in the season. He has to be the one that went into Winnipeg and beat the Blue Bombers. Pat, you mentioned the running games, and and I agree that Calgary has the better running game. It has to be better in this one, because if the Stampeders are left to rely on Jake Mayer's arm to win this game, I don't know if he's got the capability of doing it either. Yes, he has a high completion rate, but a lot of those are three, four, five-yard passes and not really forcing the ball down the field. And again, it comes into play of can you rely on those Calgary receivers other than Reggie Bagleton to make the catches when it matters? The Stampeders rushed for 213 yards the last time they played in BC. If Dave Dickinson has learned anything, that's 
the key point that he is going to stress with his team. We've got to be able to run this football. The Stampeders almost had a two-to-one ratio of rushing yards to passing yards in that football game. I will go BC wins, but Calgary gets closer. Calgary covers. BC to cover. I'm of the belief that whoever wins is going to win by more than 10 points. I like Calgary in the upset because I think BC is fragile. If something goes wrong, they can cascade. The Stampeders, just a little bit more resilient. And especially if Kadeem Carey, Diedrich Mills, or Peyton Logan rush for over 100 yards, the Lions are going to be facing a big uphill climb. I'm going to take Calgary and the upset. For listening to our show. Third Down Gamble is hosted on Podbean and can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Follow us on Twitter at Third Down Gamble. Join us again, the Third Down Gamble Podcast. Audio worth watching. Third Down Gamble uses the expert resources provided by. Canadian Football League player and game statistics, for analytics, game notes, and statistics, and 3downnation.com for news, insight, and in-depth analysis. Please visit cfl.ca and 3downnation.com for the most up-to-date information on the Canadian Football League.